0: The definition of an imposter is a person who pretends to be someone else in order to deceive others. And if that's the case, then the perfect picture of an imposter would be Barry Bremen. Barry Bremen was an insurance salesman who wanted a little bit of the spotlight. So from 1979 to 1986, he many times impersonated professional sports athletes and officials just for a little fun. So in 1979, he donned a Kansas City Kings uniform before an NBA All-Star game, and he took the court during their pregame warm-ups, and he started taking some shots, and nobody knew until an actual All-Star called him out. In the 80s, Bremen snuck onto the U.S. Open. He played a practice round of golf with some real pros, posing as a new qualifier. They quickly knew he was an imposter, but they let him play anyway, because he was actually pretty good. But the spectators kept wondering who this new player was. He never got caught with that one. And then one time, Bremen snuck onto the field of a Major League Baseball All-Star game, dressed in a Yankees uniform, and he caught flies in the outfield for 30 minutes. (laughs) And he was ready to go in for batting practice when he was finally spotted, not by the police, but by a coach, Tommy Lasorda, who hated jokesters, and Tommy escorted him off the field with a baseball bat. Bremen had a successful run as an impostor, but it was all just just for a little fun and entertainment. It's quite different though when this sort of thing takes place in the church, then it's not so fun or amusing, it can be a little bit dangerous even. And Christ himself warned us that the kingdom in this age would be filled with a type of spiritual imposture. He said pretenders and false believers would exist right alongside true believers in the church. That the wheat and the tares would grow up right next to each other in this age. And there would be some, many even claiming to follow Christ. And at first glance, they look like Christians, but they're false. Uh, there's sadly many ordinary Christians who are like this. They're, they're self-deceived. Maybe they learn the faith from an imposter. And they themselves don't even really know what it means to follow Christ. I think sadly we all know that there are countless people across America who are cultural Christians. You go to church every Sunday, carry your Bible, sing a few songs, give a little money, but, but they don't know God. They have a veneer of Christianity, but they don't follow Christ. And this is tragic, which is why scripture calls all of us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith or if we're deceived, something we need to do. But when spiritual impostors claim to speak for the Lord and represent the Lord to others, it's not just tragic, it, it's dangerous. Most outsiders, those outside of the church, they can't really tell the difference between a true and a false Christian at all. So when an imposter claims to speak for Christ and represent the faith, he can do great damage and mislead many. When it came to this Barry Bremen guy, most of the spectators couldn't tell that he was an imposter. They didn't know better. It's easy to fool the masses. But the real players and the coaches, they could tell pretty quickly. They knew the signs how you spot someone who doesn't belong and say so he was removed. And likewise, influential false teachers in the church need to be identified and, and called out before they do some real damage. And thankfully, the Lord himself equipped us how to spot the spiritual impostor. He said, for example, in Matthew 7, you'll, you'll know them by their fruits. Just look at their lives and chances are that'll give you all the proof you need. And we must be discerning and watchful. But this this challenge is nothing new. The challenge of the true and the genuine existing right next to the false and the deceived in the church is nothing new. The same thing was happening in Christ's own day among the religious leaders of Israel. And these leader, leaders were themselves almost all imposters. They had managed though to gain positions of great leadership over Israel. And so it's no wonder that people were led astray. All of their leaders were pretenders. They were not Men of genuine, true faith in the Lord. And in Matthew's gospel especially, we're going to see how much Jesus has to say about this. He reserves his harshest words of rebuke for these false leaders, that the blind leading the blind. They have to be exposed and dealt with. But before we witness how Jesus deals with spiritual impostors, we get to witness how his predecessor dealt with them how he responded, now it'd be John the Baptist. And in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12, we find out. And that's our passage for this morning. You can open your Bibles there now to follow along. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. As we carry along in our time verse by verse through Matthew's gospel, all four gospels begin the ministry of Jesus with the ministry of John the Baptist. That's only fitting. He was the promised forerunner. Long ago, God promised one would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready the way of the Lord. And he would do this by preparing the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. And that forerunner was John. And that's why he preached repentance, because sin is the the chief roadblock to faith. Last time we covered verses 1 through 6, we were just introduced to the ministry of John. We're after 400 years of silence since God last spoke through a prophet, he was was speaking again through this voice crying in the wilderness. God's grace was moving again in John. And just by the power of the message preached, God was drawing all sorts of people to himself. Many people were convicted through John that, that their sin was keeping them from God. And so heeding his message, they they confessed their sins, they repented, they renewed their hearts to God, and then they were baptized by John to symbolize all this. But not all who went out to John were so earnest. Not all were genuinely broken over their sins. Among those coming to be baptized, there were some imposters, John was not fooled, though. As a true prophet, he was trained with clear vision. He could spot them a mile away. He knew they were not genuine. He saw through their charade, and and then he, he called them out. And it's in the next passage we witness John do just that. Verses 7 through 12, we see how a group of Pharisees and Sadducees come to John for baptism. These are the main spiritual leaders of Israel. But John has... Extremely harsh words for them, and he turns them away. I mean, talk about seeker insensitive. I don't think John took church growth 101. This is not how you treat new visitors, especially the rich, the powerful. They they could bring a lot of people, a lot of money to the cause. But we get the impression, I, I don't think John cared about any of that, and neither does the Lord. It's not the type of kingdom he's building that there's no room for the spiritual impostor, And so John the Baptist rebukes them. You may think this is harsh. This is sensitive when we go through the passage. But when you think about it, it's actually the most loving thing you can do. This is loving for their sakes that these leaders might humble themselves, repent, turn, be saved, because they were just as lost as everyone else, more so. And this was also loving for the crowd because the people were still being led to think that these leaders represented the Messiah, the coming Messiah. That they did not. John did, though. And Christ himself said John was a true prophet, the greatest prophet, and more than a prophet. He truly was preparing the Messiah's kingdom. And so in John's response to these religious leaders, we learn both what doesn't belong in the kingdom... Namely, hypocrisy and also how to deal with spiritual impostures. And that's what we aim to discern this morning with our time in this text. Just to put it simply, let's find how John responds to spiritual impostures, That we might examine ourselves and others and not be deceived. How John responds to spiritual impostors to help us examine ourselves and others that we might not be deceived. And all starts in verse 7 with a stinging rebuke. First, a stinging rebuke, and that that's pretty apt. Verse 7 picks up from where we left off and just says when speaking of John, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come." Now, how's that for first impressions? I mean, what if that's how we started greeting our visitors? (laughs) A long time ago, actually, we used to have our first-time visitors stand up and give us their name in front of everybody. We used to do that. And what if we then followed up like, okay, so now tell us who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Like, (laughs) I'm not sure they'd come back. But although the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not know John, he knew them. He knew them. As a prophet, he saw the truth and what he says here is going to reflect their nature. That being said, uh, whereas John knew all about these Pharisees and Sadducees, you might not. So before we really get into the text, let me just start with a brief background to these figures. We're going to see them time and time again in Matthew's gospel. This is our first glimpse into them. So how about a, a quick, basic introduction to these figures? Starting with the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The term Pharisee means separated one, which is a fitting title. The Pharisees went to great lengths to separate themselves from all sorts of defilement. That included people. They mastered social distancing like 2,000 years ago. (laughs) They separated from all uh, manner of, of despised people, sinners, heathens, tax collectors, women, Gentiles, even Jews who didn't follow the law. Pharisees were isolationists. And in addition to separate themselves from sin, Pharisees clung to what was called the twofold law. this consisted of the written law, the Torah, first five books of the Bible and the old Testament, as well as the oral law, which was all of the commands and traditions of the elders and the rabbis passed down through the ages, which became just as authoritative as the scriptures. In fact, Since the oral law was needed to make sense of God's Old Testament, it really superseded the Old Testament and their traditions ruled them, took precedence. The regulations of this oral law were numerous and tedious, but in a way doable. They made God's law achievable and convinced themselves that by keeping these traditions, they were satisfying God's demands. Very soon, we will see what Jesus thinks about that in the Sermon on the mount the pharisees main realm of authority was the synagogues that 's where they exerted immense spiritual influence over the people in christ 's day in all the land of Palestine, there are only about six thousand Pharisees total, not that many, but under the weight of their supposed righteousness, they, they just exerted a crushing spiritual control over the people. And people would follow them unquestioningly oftentimes, much like today, how many hapless Catholics will just believe and do whatever their priest tells them to believe and do without question. But Jesus was not so naive. He did not do as they say. Rather, he refused to accept their interpretation of the law. And it's one of the main reasons they hated him because that exposed them as the impostors. They had it all wrong. Jesus let them know it several times. There were a few Pharisees like Nicodemus who humbled themselves and they sought Jesus anyway, but most in pride just could not accept Jesus disparaging the traditions of the elders. And the Pharisees used their devotion to all these laws as a way to gain spiritual authority over people, to exert themselves over others, to gain admiration and notoriety among the people. So if they lost that, They'd be no better than the common sinner. And they couldn't have that. you get got quite a different backstory though. When you consider the second group that came to see John that day. The Sadducees. The Sadducees were the wealthy ruling class. Consisting of the high priestly families. They claimed to be descendants of, of Zadok. The high priest of Solomon. And so as such, they ran the temple operation in Jerusalem. And all of the accompanying services. And if you recall when Jesus cleansed the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. He was not offending the Pharisees when he did that. He was offending the Sadducees. That was their racket. That's one of the main reasons they hated him. Of note, the Sadducees completely rejected the two-fold law. They, they didn't believe in any of the traditions of the elders. That the Pharisees believed in all the, all the oral law. In fact, the Sadducees rejected most of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books, the Torah. But lest you think somehow they were ultra-Orthodox, no, they were actually super-liberal. They believed in God, but they denied that God intervenes in the world. Everything that happens here below is a product of chance and human free will. God is hands-off. And accordingly, they denied all things supernatural, miracles angels, demons, the resurrection. In fact, they denied the afterlife. They believed that body and soul perished in death. And the Sadducees were humanistic. They were living in the present for the present. They were not opposed to Roman influence. They were happy to compromise if it got them more political power or financial gain. Their numbers were even smaller than the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the 1% but they exerted most of the political power in the land of israel and they they really tolerated no threats to their power so you can see the pharisees and the sadducees are are extremely different and not surprisingly they did not get along they opposed one another all the time they agreed on little but as you can probably also see they they found a common enemy in jesus they found common ground in their opposition of Christ. They both had reasons to hate him. And as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so throughout the gospels, the only time you really see the Pharisees and the Sadducees getting along and working together is in their opposition to Christ, to trap him, to kill him. And they eventually succeed. That is still a long way out. At this point, Matthew 3, they've not even heard of Jesus. He's not come on the scene yet. But his predecessor has, he's making a big splash near the Jordan River, pun intended. But they go to investigate. That's probably what's going on here. Verse 7 says they were coming for baptism. But the Greek text does not necessarily mean they were coming to be baptized by John. It could, it's possible. But it could also simply mean they were just coming to the place where John was baptizing. That seems likely the ruling body of the Jews at this time was known as the Sanhedrin consisted of 70 members plus the one high priest. So 71 total. And it was a split body. It was, it was governed by some Sadducees and some Pharisees. They had representation on this governing body that ruled in Jerusalem. But together though, they they hear about this growing ministry of John out in the wilderness The reason they heard about him was back in verse five, right? We saw that last time it says, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. It didn't take very long before people learned of John and people started to believe that a true prophet was in their midst again. And so the ruling Jews had to account for this. John's influence was a threat to the Sadducees. His spirituality was a threat to the Pharisees. They need to figure him out. Are you friend or foe? What are you up to? Who who sent you? Who do you claim to be? You you claim to be the Christ or Elijah? Who who do you think you are? They go to figure him out. And this, this understanding of their visit to John is actually confirmed in the parallel picture we get In the Apostle John's gospel. So it's real fast. You can flip over to John chapter 1. And and see their visit. The same visit. As John records it with a little different emphasis. John chapter 1 verses. 19 through 24. The Apostle John has a lot to say about. John the Baptist in his first chapter. But he gets down to this. Verse 19. John 1. He says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So really, you can go back to Matthew 3. There's no doubt this is a a delegation from the Sanhedrin. And knowing their background, it seems rather doubtful that they were coming to submit themselves to the baptism of John, because they weren't sinners like the ordinary people. They, they had nothing of which to repent. They didn't need to change their ways. But they did want to evaluate this John figure and, and see who he is. What, what's he about? What do we do with him? But little did, did they know that John would offer up his own evaluation of them. And that's what Matthew focuses on in his record. And he begins with John's stinging rebuke. And if they were coming for baptism... John can tell it; they're not sincere. They're, they're not repentant. They didn't think they needed to radically change anything. At best, they would be submitting to John's baptism just for the outward show of repentance, as some people still do. Or maybe to just to, to try and capitalize on John's popularity, somehow manage to like take over the movement. Either way, John calls them out when he sees him. He says, you brood of vipers. Vipers were a very poisonous desert snake. John would have been probably quite familiar with them living in the desert. And they were known as deceitful in the sense that they blended in with their surroundings and were at times confused with the dry branch. If you went to grab a branch, they would strike and, and cling and were very venomous and they could be lethal. You might recall the apostle Paul himself once found that out as he was struck by a viper. And, and these religious leaders, John implies, were, were just as deceitful and deadly. But you notice, John doesn't just call them vipers. He says, You brood of vipers, meaning offspring of vipers. And this seems to foreshadow what Jesus himself would say of these same people in John 8 44, where he, he says to them, You are of your father, the devil. You know, Satan, the serpent of old, right, the, the original impostor, and the great imposter of God is the great deceiver. And far from being true sons of Abraham, Christ would say, you're, you're sons of the devil. He's the father of lies and, and you're just like him. You're imposters. Wrath is coming for the devil and his followers. And so John says to them, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, you're not wrong to, to think that sounds harsh. It, it is a stunning rebuke. How can John say this? We we wouldn't say something like this today, would we? But I want you to keep one thing in mind. John doesn't say this to them because they were great sinners. scores of great sinners came to John and he received them with open arms. His baptism was for forgiveness of sins and the humble found grace. The reality is all of us, are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. We're all enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. We are all by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. And if the kingdom wasn't for sinners, it would be empty. But God was pleased to open the gates for all manners of sinners who repent. The brokenhearted and the repentant who turn to Christ will find mercy. Every time. But those gates quickly slam shut for the unrepentant, the prideful, the arrogant, and especially the hypocrite, the one who claims to be right and righteous before God, but is not. And the Lord Jesus, likewise, would have literal, little tolerance for the unrepentant imposter. And until they repent, the only thing he has for them is words of rebuke. For example, Matthew 23, later Jesus will say, verses 27, 28. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says in verse 33, Jesus says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? That's Christ's version of John's preaching. There's only one way to escape that sentence. It's by repentance and faith and trust in Christ, the Savior. And look, as hard as it is to hear, there might be someone here today who needs to hear that rebuke from the Lord himself. That type of rebuke hurts and stings. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. But let this sword cut you open to heal you, not to kill you as you repent. You have to repent before it's too late. John follows this up with a stern admonition. Secondly, a stern admonition in verse 8. It's not only rebuke. He tells them, verse 8, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He doesn't just rebuke them. He also admonishes them. He at least gives them a testimony of what they must do to flee from the wrath to come. And that is to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. So as to demonstrate the reality, the genuineness of their repentance. Last time we, we spent extra time reflecting on the nature of true repentance. How it starts with confession, where you acknowledge your sin as it is before God. And then it turns into contrition, where you have a genuine heartfelt sorrow over your sin and then it invariably leads to conversion where you change your ways. You turn away from that sin. You turn toward righteousness. This is repentance. These three steps, they all take place in the heart. Repentance is primarily or initially an activity of the heart, just like faith. But that being said, that, that makes it invisible. You can't see it. So how do you know if someone has repented? How do you know if someone has faith? I can't see into their heart. How do you know? They can tell you, but sometimes talk is cheap. The real proof is when they show you. And this is why behavior or actions are always identified as the fruit of faith and repentance. Just as James can say, faith without works is dead. You could just as equally say repentance without works is dead repentance that never produces any change of behavior is dead meaning false it's not repentance and john knew that at best these pharisees and sadducees might pay a type of lip service to repentance they might claim a type of repentance but seeing how they, they did not change their sinful or hypocritical ways that that in turn was the proof in the other direction that that you're just imposters he may wonder this fruit of repentance, what does it look like? And John the Baptist tells us, he preached on this. Matthew doesn't record it, but Luke does. So now let's quickly pop over to Luke chapter three, just to hear a little bit more from John the Baptist. But Luke chapter three, we get a little additional teaching of John the Baptist in his wilderness ministry. This time it's to the crowds and they, they essentially have the same question he was kind of like a broken record. He just kind of preached the same thing. But some ask him, basically, what does this look like? What is this fruit of repentance? What must we do? Luke 3, verse 10. The crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. Be content with your wages. You say you repent. You're coming for this baptism of repentance you say it, do you mean it? Do you show it? Here's a few examples of what it might look like. It's a good place for you and I, though, to stop and examine ourselves. Do you talk the talk of repentance? As a Christian, you claim when you sin, you say you repent, but then do you show it? Do you display changed behavior or, or fruit at all? If you don't, like ever, beware. If something is wrong, there's some disconnect. You might be an imposter, or you might be being deceived in your sin. It's only a good and right thing to just stop yourself, humble yourself, and examine yourself. If you're not truly converting, changing your ways, ask, you know, where's this breakdown? Are you, are you truly confessing your sin, seeing, identifying your sin before God as it is? we're still kind of hiding it, covering it up. Are you, are you experiencing this genuine contrition? You are actually broken because you see your sin before a holy God, or it does not really bug you that much? Maybe you're just staying down in your sin. You are so brokenhearted over your sin, but you refuse to believe God could forgive you. And that too is a problem. Christ has already come. He's already made full atonement for all of our sins, and because of that, God promises to forgive you always in Christ. Be assured of his forgiveness in Christ. Don't stay in your sin. Don't wallow in your sin. Don't cling to your sin. Just repent and by faith, bear fruit of changed behavior. This is an admonition we all need. But John's not done. You can go back to Matthew 3 one more time. And he follows us up with thirdly, a, a shutdown excuse as he respond to them, he gives them a shutdown excuse, you might say. Preemptively, this is in verse 9. He carries on, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 9, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Surely this dialogue between John and these religious leaders was longer than what we have here. But at some point, John chose to go on the offensive and take away from them one of their top excuses for not humbling their hearts and repenting before God. And so John basically says next, like, don't think you can get away with just saying, like, we have Abraham for our father. That's not going to cut it. This may have been one of the, the greatest Jewish misconceptions of the time. Which remains to this day and essentially boils down to salvation by first birth. That they were essentially born into a state of salvation because of their Jewish lineage. Their lineage from Abraham. This notion arises from misunderstanding of what it means to be part of God's covenant people. It is true. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham and his descendants that passed down to Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. God did promise that they would be a people before him forever, corporately. But they were never meant to think that their own individual salvation or relationship with God was a function of just being born a Jew. Jews were indeed born into this covenantal people, but For any generation to enjoy God's covenant blessings, they had to repent and believe in him. I mean, how many times did God himself judge and cut off generations of Israelites in the Old Testament? And he did so, why? For their sin and unbelief. Just being a descendant of Abraham didn't give him a pass. They fell because of their unbelief. Because of God's promise to Abraham, he will never cut off his descendants entirely. And one day God will restore Israel nationally to belief. But God always preserves a remnant. And that remnant consists of those who repent and believe. Abraham himself was justified by faith, not work. So what made these religious leaders think it would be any different for them? Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And true descendants of Abraham will likewise be justified by faith. This is true of Abraham's physical seed. Being born Jewish is not enough to justify them. They too must repent and believe in the gospel, which is the power of salvation from God for all who believe to the Jew first, also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. Speaking of the Greek though, God's promised salvation was never only meant for the physical seeds of Abraham. It was also intended for his spiritual descendants, which consists of all who believe. It was always God's design for for Gentiles or or non-Jews. To have access to the same salvation through the same door. There's only one door, and it's faith. So Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, he says, to be sure, it is those who are of faith, who are sons of Abraham. In Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And that explains why John the Baptist says back to these leaders in verse 9, For I say to you, that from these stones, God is able to raise up children for Abraham. God God can make a spiritual descendant of Abraham from anyone. These Jews did not hold a monopoly on salvation just because they were Jewish. They were physical descendants of Abraham. I mean, if need be, God could transform literal stones into descendants of Abraham to inherit his salvation. And honestly, that's not that far from what God would do. Taking dead stone hearts and turning them to hearts of flesh. As we read this morning in Ezekiel 36. Transforming many Jews and Gentiles into spiritual descendants of Abraham. But in all, it's very important that John the Baptist preemptively shuts down this main excuse by the Jews. And really, you think about it again, it's, it's just the most loving thing he could do. These, these men before him, they were still Dead. And lost in their sins. But they were self-deceived. So they didn't know it. They thought they were perfectly fine. But God's wrath was coming. And they were in the line of fire. And even worse. Because of their position. They were threatening to take many people with them. And So John had to call them out. For their sake. And for the sake of all those who follow them. Heritage doesn't save you. Works righteousness doesn't save you. Trying to be a good person doesn't save you. They were about to jump out of a plane, trusting in their parachute to save them. And John is really telling them, beware, your parachute has no strings. Your confidence in yourself is false. It will fail you. And of this too, they must repent. Ultimately, this is what they need to repent of, just confidence in themselves before God. The same goes for you and me. What is your excuse? And what is your parachute? What answer would you give for your justification before God? If your answer involves your deeds, your church attendance, doing good, your Christian upbringing, baptism, a spiritual experience, doing more good than bad. All you have is a parachute without strings. You're ultimately trusting in yourself to justify you before God and you will fail you. Christ alone is your only hope of rescue because Christ alone died on the cross, rose from the dead to actually put away all of your sins before God. And so you too must cling to him alone to be saved from this wrath to come. And speaking of, John is not done warning them. He goes back to number four, a shocking warning. From verse 10, a shocking warning. He says in verse 10, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jonah's not done letting them know how serious and precarious their position is. That they're not standing on solid ground. Their faith in themselves, their trust in themselves is not a sturdy foundation it's like they're, they're walking on a field of lava and just the thinnest crust of earth is all that, that shields them. And it could give way at any moment. And they must be warned. So after taking away their confidence in the flesh, John warns them just how close to peril they are. He uses a different analogy. He says the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. This image would have been a familiar one. Any uh, owner of a vineyard or orchard would know this. Take inventory of their trees each year after harvest. The farmer plants these trees for one purpose, fruit. And so at the end of the harvest, they'll evaluate all those trees that don't bear fruit year after year. They're given many opportunities to just come alive, bear some fruit. But the ones that never do ultimately prove it's it's just a bad tree. There's nothing else to do but to cut it down and use it for firewood. And hence, John says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The fruit, again, that John speaks of here is that same fruit of repentance. We're not saved by works or deed or fruit, but as Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Such fruit is the proof positive that faith and repentance have been wrought in the heart. And without such fruit, without a changed life stemming from repentance and faith. You're just giving proof positive in the other direction that, that they're still cut off from God. And so all that awaits them is fire, which is no doubt a symbol here of God's wrath. But again, we have to say though, ultimately we're all in the same boat. It's not just this Pharisees and these Sadducees, all people at one point are just precariously hanging over God's wrath and deservedly. So because of our sins against him, He says the ax is laid at the root of the trees is a simple image that the time is short. You could start swinging any moment, but I hope you realize that the very fact they were warned and here this morning, you are warned is already God's mercy to you. God would be perfectly just to issue no warning whatsoever, but just to, just to judge. He'd be perfectly just to just judge. Flood the earth again. Send some fire. to start swinging the axe and judge all the wicked. It is what they deserve. He can't do that. And one day, he will. But realize he warns and he delays because of his long-sufferingness, his patience, and his love for his people. Isn't that what Second Peter 3.9 says? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's only one right response to this. It is to not delay, to not tarry in your repentance. You must turn from your sin and turn to Christ today. So many people, they'll have this attitude that they'll do it later. Like they're not totally opposed to what you're saying here, but they'll repent later in life. You know, they're young, their life is ahead of them. They want to kind of live it up, enjoy it, have some fun, like the prodigal, just get their fill of of loose living. And then, you know, when they're old, past their prime, okay, then they'll settle down, they'll shape up. They'll, They'll eventually start, you know, getting right with the Lord. But what such people don't count on is the hardening effect of sin, the hardening effect of sin. Every time you choose, you make a choice to turn away from Christ and turn to your sin. Keep your sin. Every time you make that choice, you don't realize it is hardening your heart a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. Each time your heart grows harder and harder, and eventually you will be sealed in your lost condition. You always find some excuse not to turn to the Lord. But like Hebrews 3.13 says, do not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the main way you do that is don't delay in your repentance. Don't tolerate any sin in your life. You don't delay. In addition, you don't even know if you'll make it to old age. The final day of God's wrath may be far off, who knows? But as Hebrews nine twenty seven says, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. The day of your death, which seals your fate, it seals your condition. That day could come any second, which we all know. Your only opportunity to repent and cling to Jesus comes right now in this life only. You will never know when you will be ushered into eternity. So you have to ask yourself the same question. Will will you keep making these excuses? And we can only pray that, that John's shocking warning would get through to you, humble you, don't delay. As a final word here, lastly, we need to know about this. John tells them, tells us about number five, a separating savior. How he responds to these spiritual imposters. He tells them of a separating savior. Verses 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let can stop there for a second. And John's final words to these religious leaders, he, he gives them a, a message of, of hope and warning. And they come together in the one coming after him, namely the Messiah. John, again, always very careful to distinguish himself from the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. The the one coming after him is, is leagues greater than he is. He always says that. The difference between John and the coming Messiah is like the difference between the sun and the moon, as we reflected on last week. Here, John adds, he's not even fit to remove his sandals, which is to say, back then, he's not even fit to be the Messiah's slave. That's the work a slave would do back then. You know, part of the qualitative difference between John and the Messiah concerns the baptisms they administer. This is a perfect case in point showing how much greater the Messiah is than John and why this matters. John is merely administering the outward sign of baptism. John baptizes people in some water. All that does is symbolize inner heart renewal. But John can't do that. He can't actually like give someone a new heart. He can't even make them repent. He can't create new hearts in people, make them born again into eternal life. That divine work is wrought by the Holy Spirit and only the Messiah will wield that baptism. And so John says the Messiah, when he comes, he'll be the one to actually change people. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I know there's so many questions and misconceptions about what that means, this phrase, baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire. So much so that there's a good chance, I'm not sure yet, but there's a good chance we'll come back next week for a deep dive to explore further what that truly means. But I can only give you the short version now. And in short, contrary to Pentecostals, The baptism of the Spirit here is not some second filling of the Spirit after salvation, enabling you to work signs and wonders. Now, the baptism of the Spirit is none other than the promised new covenant work of the Spirit to remove hearts of stone and to give people hearts of flesh. This is the promise of the new birth, which corresponds to the new covenant the Messiah would bring. And this is why the Messiah's baptism would be so much greater. John's building a a contrast here. He is squarely in the old covenant and his baptism is not the same as Christ's baptism. John is one of expectation. Christ will be one of fulfillment in John's baptism. People were re-identifying with God as their father in anticipation of the coming Messiah, but in Christ's baptism, which becomes the church's baptism, We are identifying with Christ directly and his death, burial, and resurrection. John himself understood that the Messiah's baptism would be vastly more significant. It's still pictured by water. We have the same symbol of water. But Christ's actual baptism of the Spirit takes place at the moment of salvation, where the Spirit regenerates sinners, makes them alive, born again, and unites them to Christ. Only the Messiah can do this. Only he can send his spirit to baptize people with the spirit, immerse them with the spirit and make them come alive. Only he can do that. John can't do that. I can't do that. No one can do that, but the Lord, which is why as John makes the point, you better receive him because otherwise you have no chance at salvation. Otherwise you will only receive his baptism with fire. Again, we might deal with this more next week, but in short, This baptism with fire refers to the Messiah's judgment. People wonder, like, what does this really mean? The context is key, isn't it? When interpreting the Bible, just go to the context. And in this context, what is this fire? We've already been warned of God's wrath several times in this discussion. And in the verse before, the same word fire was used. In what context? In the context of God's judgment. The same goes with the verse following. So the verse before, the verse after mentioned fire in a context of judgment. Verse 12. He says of Christ, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And speaking of the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand. This picture is harvesting grain where you'd pile up your your threshed wheat on top of a hill. You'd take your winnowing fork, you'd thrust it into the pile of wheat, you'd throw it up into the air and all the heavy kernels of grain would fall back down to the earth, but the chaff would blow away and the wind. This is how the ancient farmer would separate the usable heads of wheat from the unusable chaff. Now wheat is precious, it is gathered into the barn but the chaff is worthless. It is only fit for what? He says fire, unquenchable fire. That is, that is another picture of judgment. Unquenchable, the word in Greek is asbestos, which originally referred to quicklime, which was a substance that, uh, it's a mineral that burns when you add water and cannot be put out by water. And became a symbol for unquenchable fire. And then therefore an image later of hell. Jesus himself used this phrase in Mark 9.43 to describe hell. So you put it all together. There's really zero doubt that this baptism in fire refers to judgment. And specifically, this is the judgment the Messiah himself will render when he returns. He will be the one to separate the true from the false the believer from the imposter. Again, we have to pause and ask, how will you be separated and sorted on that day? If that day were today, how would you be sorted? Only those who humble themselves, repent of their sins, and just desperately cling to Christ by faith will be gathered in And they show evidence of the Spirit's regenerating work in their heart. They've been baptized by the Spirit. They bear fruit in keeping with faith and repentance. But the lost are those who keep up their charade until the end. I mean, hypocrites always ignore their sin and they they avoid talking about judgment. They're ever forced to think about judgment then they quickly reach for some excuse, some justification to shield them, to cover them thinking they'll be fine. But when Christ returns, no covering will be found. At that point, it says they will be the ones who call on the rocks and the hills to cover them, to shield them from the Messiah's wrath. But not even that will save them. The only covering for God's wrath is the shield of Christ himself. But they themselves have already rejected that. And so all that's left for them is to be baptized with fire. Which is to say that Christ himself will immerse them in God's wrath forever. That is one baptism you do not want to partake in. It's not lost on me that today is Valentine's Day. (laughs) This is probably not the message you were expecting. This is, it's heavy. It's serious. John's message is heavy and serious, but I hope you still realize that there's still grace in these words. And did you know John's name means Yahweh is gracious. And it was God who named John. His parents didn't name him. God gave him the name. Yahweh is gracious. That might strike you as odd. Like, how do we get that? He just preaches hell and fire and wrath. Where's the grace? But it's gracious in the fact that God sent John to warn people in the first place. To flee from the wrath to come. It's gracious in that God sent his son after John. Christ, the Messiah. Where he died on the cross to experience the full measure of God's wrath toward your sins. So that you would never have to. And it's gracious in the fact that in God's providence you're here this morning to hear it, to receive the warning all over again. Let this grace soften your heart to receive his message. One greater than John has already come. You need to repent and believe in him today. He will baptize you with his spirit. He will make you new. And one day he will then gather you in to the joy of his presence forever. But do not delay. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we we thank you for your grace this morning in in a roundabout way. We've heard these these stern, strict words of warning and even impending wrath from John the Baptist in your inspired scriptures. And they still speak to us as we recall them. You still speak through your word, the message for us today in hearing and receiving this word. And I pray it, it humbles us. And, and has its effect of, of pleading with us to turn and to turn to Christ uh, today. As we say often, when we pray again for any who you may have brought by your hidden providence to be here this morning, who need a message like this from John the Baptist, that they would, it would humble their hearts. They would stop making those excuses for why they will not yield all of their lives to Christ as their Lord. He's the only savior. But the only way to receive Him is to, to empty your hands of all, that you cling to their sin and their self and to turn and and to cling to him alone. We pray you work your miracle of new birth by your spirit in those today who need it. And for us who have already received it, Lord, I pray this generates those thankfulness. May we not fall prey to our ongoing sin, but to continue to take it seriously. We we want to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, put away the old things, help renew our, our passion and zeal like John to to seek kingdom righteousness, not self-righteousness. We can do nothing apart from Christ who strengthens us, but, but in honor and in joy of the one who has saved us when we live for him. We thank you, Lord Jesus. You have saved us from what? you saved us from God, from God's own wrath, which we, we know we deserved. But receiving this, such a gift, again, we, we have to yield our lives to you. Now, in worship, in thankfulness, in joy, in celebration, and in anticipation because we know that when he returns, he will gather us in. So we long for that day. Until then, may we be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.